Well, as uh, Jason read there, we're in chapter 14 today of, of Romans. And um, in the previous two chapters, Paul, 12 and 13, Paul has been talking about great things and lovely things like the marks of a genuine Christian, which is love for friend and foe, uh, the conforming, the renewing of the mind, all these wonderful things. And now today we come to a matter of specific contention between believers and the church, uh, a place where tolerance was needed, kindness and consideration. This kind of is where the rubber met the road or meets the road. And it happens in all churches, in our church as well as anyone else. So we're going to have a look at this today after we pray. Father, um, we just thank you that we're able to meet here this Sunday morning in safety, that we're able to encourage one another, um, that we're able to read your word and get filled up by it, that we're able to sing your praises and worship songs, worship songs with, with great and enthusiastic leaders, Lord. We thank you for the work they do. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the encouraging um, preparations they do, Lord. There's nothing like a song to lift the heart in the morning, Lord, especially a worship song. And through your word now, Father, would you continue to lift our souls, Lord, and to uh, draw us nearer to you and to draw us into a deeper fellowship and that we may go away from here different people, blessed by your word. Uh, Father, in these things we pray in your son's precious name, Jesus, amen. I suppose speaking personally, um, when I became a Christian, or when God made me a Christian, um, I had a lot of baggage. I had emotional baggage, religious baggage, uh, cultural baggage, many of other sorts of bag baggages and issues that were landed right beside me on this road on my Christian journey. And to be honest with you, some of them, and a lot of them, are still there today. God is gradually casting the rags out of my baggage as I'm working and as I'm letting him do it. But it's a slow, painful process, isn't it? If we're honest, we all have a lot of baggage. And I was arrested this week when I read a great quote by Timothy Keller. He says, the church is not a museum, he said, for pristine saints, but it's a hospital ward for broken sinners. So the church, he said, is not a museum for pristine saints, but it's a hospital ward for broken sinners. And I think a lot of that baggage that we have in our personal lives and that we bring in through the church doors the first day we become Christians and the first time we attend church, we often think in Paul's day, things must have been much better, you know? I mean, Jesus was just, he was born just a couple of years before. He just died a couple of years before. They must have known so much more about him. They were so much more copped on probably as Christians, even young Christians, but... We can see that even in Paul's days, there were issues of severe contention. And we're going to look at those today. But before we have a look at the specific problem, I think it would be helpful if we ran over two particular dastardly characters that were influencing the way that these Christians thought. And that was antinomianism and legalism. So I think it might be wise that we have a quick look at them first of all, because they'll help us to understand the root of the problems in this early Roman church. So I have to thank R.C. Sproul for the help that he gave me in understanding some of these issues. Um, and I'll be quoting and, and, and using some of his material. But anyways, both of these are arch enemies of God's grace. 
Okay? Even though they're, they're, they're really opposed to one another, antinomianism and legalism, they have some things in common. They are really opposed to God's grace. And the second thing probably is they come in all sorts of forms, from legalism with a big in-your-face L to small sneaky things that we don't even realize we're doing half the time. And the same with antinomianism, blatant disregard for the law, and at other times, antinomianism with a small a. We don't even realize we're doing it. We're sort of justifying some small sin maybe in our life. We're not really entering the spirit of the law, certainly not the letter of the law. So antinomianism, antinomianism means anti-lawism, and it carries this idea that you're saved by grace, you're freed from the judgment of your sin, but you're not too willing to follow a life of obedience and follow Christ's instructions. The very thing that brought you to repentance, if it was true repentance, and that was the law, you're now just throwing aside and you're saying, well, look, I can see here in my Bible that it says that by works of the law, no man is justified. And you justify this and you carry on your life and you think that you have a license to sin. Some might call someone like this a carnal Christian, which is an oxymoron, isn't it? A carnal Christian. Someone who's not too worried about their sin. They may have the Lord in their life, but certainly the Lord is not ruling on the throne. This would be an extreme expression or extreme form of antinomianism, where you're blatantly disregarding the law and carrying off with a life of, of sin. You could be into drugs, living with a, a, living with a partner, not attending church, not seeking fellowship, not reading your Bible, but because you've made a confession of faith at one stage, you think that all is hunky-dory. And this might be a problem as well with overzealous evangelism, seeking to convert people when they haven't really understood the gospel. Legalism is also a slippery little character and something which we're all guilty of if we're honest. In its simplest form, it just means that you believe in your heart and soul that you must perform certain things to gain approval of God, who in your mind, even though you mightn't really realize it, is sort of a bean-counting old father up in heaven, who on the last day, on the day of judgment, looks at you and says, well, your good works have outdone your bad works. Well done, come on in. This is not the gospel. Now again, legalism can have many strands. Jesus, as we know, always contended with some of the Pharisees regarding their blatant disregard of the spirit of the law. They followed it to the letter, but they completely flouted the spirit of the law. And R.C. Sproul gives a nice example of this. He says, the Pharisees, he says, in another strand of legalism, they majored in minor things. And if we look at Matthew 23, 23, we can see Jesus contending with the scribes, and he says to them, woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he didn't mince his words. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, he said, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. Notice, he didn't, he didn't say you didn't have to do these. He says, these you ought to have done. This is what was expected of you. Without, he says, neglecting the others. So Jesus tells him, look, lads, you should have done those anyways but you're ignoring the more important part of the law. This is another form of legalism and something which I think people in all churches are guilty of. I know I have been guilty of this as well. We might know some people who 
or particular exponents of this sort of strand of legalism. They might be scrupulous in their, in their tithing. They might attend church regularly. They never miss a service. They might never short God on the collection plate. But behind it all, but any of the rest of the fruits of the spirits, they don't really have half as much of a regard for. There are other forms as well. R.C. Sproul goes on to give a few more forms, but we won't go into those today. But anyways, I think that antinomianism and legalism are very much tied with the text that we're going to look at today. So there was an issue in the Roman church. What was it? Well, an issue had arisen where Paul had to address two groups of people because there was severe contention. One group of people believed that in all good conscience, and this is important, in all good conscience, we have to give them some slack here. We have to believe that, you know, they were genuine, sincere believers. So in all good conscience, they believed that their new Christian faith did not allow them to eat certain foods or drink certain drinks or keep certain days. They believed that they had certain days of festival days, including the Sabbath, have to be kept stringently as in the Old Testament, and they had to be loyal to these and this was good. And then on the other side of the camp, there was a group who thought, no, all these Old Testament things are not binding on us now. We have great freedom in our new faith. And they were going a bit too hard on what's called the weaker brother. We might call them the weaker brother and the stronger brother for the rest of the sermon. The weak in faith, we'll, we'll say, were the people who thought that they had to eat certain foods and keep certain days, and we call the stronger brother the people who thought they didn't have to keep those particular days to please God. And as we see in verse 1 to 3, Paul introduces the problem. So let's track on to 1 to 3. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person, Paul says, he may eat anything. Sorry, one person believes he may eat anything. While the weak person, note Paul doesn't say believes, he says eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So you have one group who are despising, and you have one group who are judging. Now, who's worse? <laughs> They're both equally bad. This is a problem. This is not good. But notice those superb, encouraging words at the end of verse 3. For God welcomed him. So the weaker brother, who is judging the stronger brother for not keeping perhaps some scruples and sensitivities that he himself felt should be kept, shouldn't judge because, Paul says, God has welcomed the brother who doesn't ascribe to some of the stuff that you do. So stop judging him. Now, who are the weak in faith? What kind of people were they? Well, after reading many commentaries on this, there is some matter of disputes, but majority of commentators believe that these weak brothers, or weaker brothers, weak in the faith, were actually Jewish converts who came from their religion of Judaism and were now new Christians. But there's also perhaps a little strand of others that sneaked in with them, and these might have been maybe Gentile believers as well, Gentile, formerly maybe Gentiles who lived next maybe to our main Jewish neighborhood or next to a Jewish neighbor, and, you know, they were privy to all the the, uh, or some of, the, uh, some of the tenets of the law. They knew exactly what Jews believed in. They were friends with Jews. And maybe as an act of loyalty, when they became Christians, they wanted to hang on to some of the stuff that their Jews and neighbors also believed in. It's tenuous, but perhaps. And of course, there were groups as well who were just 
normal Jews who had no problems with this new Christian liberty like Paul himself. We can see that he nailed his colors to the mast in um, Colossians 22. He said, therefore, he said, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, Paul says, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the real thing, belongs to Christ. So we can see Paul's stance. He believes in Christian liberty in this matter. But we can see also that he holds no grudge against those who don't agree with him. Now, Paul says that these Christians weren't necessarily new Christians either. New to the faith. Maybe naive in some of the tenets of the faith. He says they were Christians who were weak in the faith. They could have been quite... They could have been Christians who were Christian for, for years, but they were weak in the faith. Why is this? What was their position? Well, I think, and most commentators think, they were just simply Jewish believers who believed that they could be better believers or stronger believers or believers that would please God more if they bought some of these ordinances from the Old Testament into their new faith and just sort of added them to the new faith. They were sincere in this belief. They were following their conscience. There was nothing dark or sinister about it. Well, why were they abstaining from food? What was the problem anyways? I mean, if Paul didn't, and Paul was their mentor and pastor, why would they abstain from... Well, Paul wasn't their pastor, but he was certainly a visitor there. But why, why were they abstaining from meat? And we see next week when Jason preaches that they were abstaining from drink. And why were they keeping certain days of the festival Jewish calendar? Why? Well, it's, it's not so easy to kind of explain it, maybe with the food anyways, at least we could say that as we know in this church, we've had plenty of good teaching that, you know, on the issue in Corin the church in Corinthians, there was a lot of meat and nearly all the meat and drink in those days was offered up to idols. And maybe some of these new Jewish converts felt that in all good conscience, the best thing to do to please God was just not to eat any of this meat anyways. Problem solved. Or maybe just not drink any of this wine anyways. No more problems, in all good conscience. And that's rather noble, that's a rather noble thing to think. It's not easy, I suppose, in any culture or society to, to not eat meat or to not drink wine. So they were sincere believers. Paul, we can see in chapter 1, or chapter 8 to 10 in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, addresses this problem. And Paul, just real quick, comes to the conclusion, look at Paul says to them, if you read it, he says, don't partake in the meal that's up in the temple because when the meat was killed, it was first eaten in the temple, there was a great big meal up there, a fellowship meal. And Paul says, if you partake in the meal in the temple, if you partake in fellowship, uh, I think he called it the din of, or the table of Satan, was it? That's what he meant, up in the temple. Don't do that, he was saying to the Christians. But the meat that you see in the market, you can buy that. There's no problem with that. This, this, the meat itself is not sinful. But if you partake in fellowship up in the temple, you're capitulating and you're saying that idol worship is okay. N.T. Wright, the commentator, says that these people were genuine believers, but they had not, he says, worked out the full implications of their faith. And again, he says, and there were people whose faith, though real, had not matured to the point where they understood its full implications. Now, antinomianism and legalism have an offshoot. 
And you could say that someone who oversteps the boundary in antinomianism might abuse their Christian liberty, their freedom in Christianity to do certain things. And you could say that the legalist oversteps his boundaries by forcing his beliefs on others. And this was the problem in Romans 14. This is the problem that Paul had to contend to. So the problem with the weaker brother was that he was trying to bind, he was trying to tie up the conscience of his stronger brother. He was trying to make him feel that it was good to believe these things about certain holy days to be adhered to, certain foods to be eaten and not eaten. And he was probably maybe a bit pushy in pushing on those things on the stronger brother. And the stronger brother, and just in the spirit of fighting back, was beginning to despise this and just getting tired of it. Paul speaks about these things and he calls them, notice there in verse, in, uh, verse 1, he calls them matters of indifference, or maybe in some translations, disputable matters. Or in my Bible it says, the ESV, quarreling over opinions. The reformers used to call these uh, matters adiaphora, or matters of indifference. They're not important. They're not central to our salvation. They're not central to our faith. But they were central to sanctification. They were causing problems in sanctification in the Roman church. The weaker brothers lacked maturity of faith. That would come in time, but the problem with the stronger brothers, he wasn't willing to cut them any slack. He wasn't willing to let the weaker brother grow in faith. And that was becoming a problem. Were they legalists? Was there any hint of legalism in this? I think there might have been. But certainly Paul is not saying that it was legalists with a capital L like there was in the church in Galatia. It was a type of legalism in that the weaker brother was in effect binding the stronger brother's conscience in matters which God had not given a direct commandment to do or to abstain from. So Paul has to rebuke them. And in verse 3 he rebukes the stronger brother, first of all, he says, do not despise the weaker brother's scruples. Paul says that don't abuse your Christian liberty. Do not try and cause your brother to sin, because that's what, that was one of the problems here in Jason. We'll be fleshing this out next week. If the stronger brother was, for example, partaking in meat that perhaps might have been sacrifice to idols. And yet it didn't prick the stronger brother's conscience because he was mature in the faith. He understood that meat in itself was not sinful. Well, then the weaker brother who was looking at this might have been tempted to break his conscience, to go against his conscience and partake in, his meat, and partake in the meat himself. And of course, when you break or go against your conscience and you, you think, well, if I do that, it might be sin, and you do it, well, it takes sin to do that. So the stronger brother indirectly was causing the weaker brother to sin. And Paul rebukes him for this. And he rebukes the weaker brother, he says, do not hold the stronger brother, he's saying, to standards. Because God has, God has welcomed him. God has accepted him. He doesn't need to do these extra things. Now, if we're honest, I suppose we all have been victim of this. We've all either had legalistic thoughts at some stage in our lives. I know when I was a Christian weak in the faith, and I'm not saying I'm strong in the faith, but I'm stronger in the faith. We, we grow continually, but I remember uh, I was a Christian for a few years, and I was invited to a men's just informal meeting in a, in, a, in a church building, 
It wasn't the actual church, but it was a building that the church used for summer camps, etc. And uh, we had a good old time. We sang hymns and we prayed and uh, we had great fellowship and it lasted about an hour, an hour and a half. And we were all standing up and, and just saying our goodbyes. Some of us who were moving on and uh, some of the lads decided to stay. And I remember a box of beer was taken out. And uh, I was shocked. Now, I wasn't much of a drinking man anyways, so it wasn't, it wasn't really a temptation to me. I might have been a bit self-righteous in the whole thing, you know. Uh, but a box of beer was taken off, and, and the lads all had one beer before they went home. And it made me feel very, very uncomfortable. And I remember driving home, uh, which took about an hour, and this spirit of judgmentalism took over me. And by the time I was home, I was feeling quite self-righteous. And I felt, I felt a better Christian than that mob of guys I'd left behind. Thank you very much. Now, I hadn't intended or stoked up these thoughts. These men were very close to me, and they were good, godly men. But I was trying to impose a standard on them that Paul, our God, did not even impose on the people of their day. I had taken some of this baggage with me from my former for my former life and my former faith, where there was such prohibitions against drink, and drink was made out to be terrible and to be of the devil, etc., etc. And, of course, there are strong prohibitions in the Bible against drunkenness. But the Bible does not disagree with something having a drink. There is great freedom in Christ. But with great freedom, there is great responsibility not to abuse that freedom. Paul, then, in verses 4 to, 9, 4 to 9, brings us down to earth. He says, he asks a pointed question. He says, who gives you the right, he says, to judge the servant of another? You are not his master. The Lord is, and the Lord can make him stand. Stand here, having the same meaning as saved. And we see in Philippians 1 to 6, and I am sure of this, he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So the important thing in Paul's mind is that whatever you stance you take on these matters of indifference, these non-essentials, that you should be fully convinced in your own mind, that you should follow your conscientious conviction in the matter. As we said earlier, if you don't follow your conscience, you will sin. And Paul gives us a clue in verse 6 why he's so diverse and so patient and so tolerant of these diverse religious views. Note there in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes, in, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since the Lord gives, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. To quote Dr. Moo, or, or Douglas Moo, the um, Commentator, he says, Paul will tolerate these diverse practices as long as they do not violate any biblical or moral norm, as long as they are motivated by the glory of God. The strong and the weak are both acting in this case, in Paul's day, to please God, to glorify God. And that's noble, that's good. That's why they shouldn't condemn one another. It's as if Paul is saying, look at if you want to eat meat, that's fine. If you want to be a vegetarian, 
that's fine too. If you want to regard the Sabbath and other festival days as holy, that's fine. If you want to regard Sunday, the first day of the week, as holy, the day of worship, the day of rest, that's fine too. Let's accommodate each other, he says, and show care for each other's conscience and continue to do everything for the glory of God. And then Paul presses in verses 7 to 9, he presses the point home here. He says that no Christian acts out of regard to himself or herself only. He says, we are, own, we are slaves to a new master, to God and not to others. In verse 7 he says, for none of us, he says, lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died. For to this end, Christ died, and he lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So whatever we do in our life, or in our dying, as the martyrs of old and the martyrs of now, still do, live well for the Lord, and if we have to, die well for the Lord. This is the privilege of the Christian. It's no, it's no burden. He is a wonderful master who has died for us and returned to life so that we could have fellowship with him. For to this end, Paul says that Christ has died and lived again, that he might be Lord of the dead and of the living, whether we live with him or whether we die with him. Verses 10 to 12 then, Paul draws on the sovereignty of God and says that only God has the right to judge. He says, why do you pass in verse 10 judgment on your brother? Are you, he says, speaking to the stronger, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. He's quoting Isaiah then. So then in verse 12 he says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we saw in verse 3 one reason why the brothers should not condemn one another, and that was because they were acceptable. They were acceptable to God. Now we can see that after repeating his rebuke, Paul goes and he reminds them that both the parties, weak and strong, one day will have to give an account of themselves, of everything they did as Christians in front of the judgment seat. This is not a judgment for heaven or unto heaven and hell now. This is just a judgment unto rewards. But all Christians will have to account, all of us will have to account to our master. Paul says, let's leave the criticizing till then. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 9, there's a verse that says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, these matters that were around in Paul's day are still around today. They're still in our churches. The devil is an expert at causing strife and division. And he uses these little things as great opportunities to divide people and divide churches, to destroy Christian witnesses, to stymie the growth of Christians, and to cause divisions in churches. There are plenty of these issues around, these non-essentials, these issues of of, 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 they're not important for salvation or for faith, but they are important to keep the unity in the church. What about Christian dance? Should Christians dance? Should Christians smoke? Should Christians go to movies, wear makeup, 
play cards, many more join the army, wear head coverings, many, many more. These are all non-essential matters, but Satan uses these as bait to stoke up hatred and intolerance between brothers and sisters. And if this is the case, we can only presume that this might be the case in this church as well. So if after reading, and reading that text and, and listening to uh, antinomianism versus legalism, the stronger brother perhaps, overstepping his Christian freedom, the weaker brother perhaps, pushing boundaries, pushing ordinances that God himself did not mandate onto others. Let me ask you a question. Stronger brother, have you ever found yourself with one foot in the antinomian camp on issues like these? You know, has the old man risen up in you? Have you contended maybe ungraciously with a brother or sister over a matter which you disagree with? Have you abused your Christian liberty and overstepped and not loved as God has commanded us? All the Ten Commandments are summarized up into love your neighbor. Have you asserted your right to do something when you knew it was causing hurt to your weaker brother? Have you said things you regretted, opened your mouth and blurted out something? Something stupid when it might have been better just to say nothing. Remember, God is getting rid of our baggage, but it takes time, and it takes more time for some than others. The tongue is a terrible weapon. Proverbs says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Well, I have a verse for you, stronger brothers. If you find yourself, or if you think, and we all have been probably in this camp, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, stronger brother, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Weaker brothers, if you're listening, let me ask you a question. Have you found yourself maybe with a foot in the legalist camp? Perhaps your scruples and your sensitivities will not allow you maybe to fully fellowship with another believer who has different opinions on a particular subject with you. Even though maybe they have been reasonable and fair with you, you might regard them maybe as a second-rate Christian because of these different views. Maybe they have not shown patience to you and you find that there's bitterness in your heart. when you think maybe of some chat you had in the past. Maybe you resent their freedom of conscience and having views that are against your views. Well, you must take verse 13 to heart as well. Bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And the church as well, do we deal fairly and with tolerance with people who have different views and different outlooks on certain non-essentials in this church? Let me leave you with a few verses. These are encouraging verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look to his own interests. Sorry, let each one of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Ephesians 4, 29 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We've been saved by grace, and we're going to be sanctified by grace. Jesus redeemed our lives on the cross so, let there be, so that there could be peace and harmony amongst his people. For his name's sake, let's pray. Father, I hope that... Um, I hope that this text and this message has served perhaps to, to heal or to cause someone in this congregation to, to move, to heal in some way with someone who has a difference of opinion with them in these minor matters, matters that are not essential for salvation, but still matters, matters that are held close in the conscience and to each who holds them are held as important. Father, help us to be tolerant, help us to be loving, and help us more than anything else to use Jesus Christ as our model of how we should judge others. Let us think in the back of our heads before we judge others. How is our Savior judging him, or how is our Savior judging her? Father, encourage us during the week as we go out to share this message of tolerance towards others, to be good neighbors, to share the gospel, to tell people that they are in need of, of a savior, that their sin has weighed them down and has caused them not to be able to fellowship with God, that there's a gap between them and God that is too great for them to gap ever, and that only Jesus can do it because of the work he did on the cross. And we live by the fruits of his endeavors, Lord, the firstborn among many brothers. And we thank you in Jesus' name for all these things that you've shown us, Father, in your word and in our understanding and the renewing and conforming our minds to the things of Jesus, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.